Welcome back to the program. Don't forget, our two Andrew Cogliano stops by of the Stanley Cup champion Colorado Avalanche. Very much looking forward to that conversation. Joe Smith of The Athletic will be aboard as well to help read out the, uh, the laundry list of injuries that the, uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning players uh, all, went through, or, uh, all went through as, the, uh, as the, uh, the Avalanche win the Cup and the Tampa Bay Lightning live to fight another day and we still think this is a really good team with some big decisions on the horizon that Julian Breezebois has to make. But I don't think we've seen, I don't think we even kid ourselves, that we've seen the last of the Tampa Bay Lightning uh, after they failed to beat the uh, the Avalanche. Anyway, more on that coming up in hour two. In the meantime, uh, here to talk about the Hockey Hall of Fame, uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins, and also the GM of the Year Award and the genesis of it, where it came from, uh, is the one and only Brian Burke. Uh, Brian joins me now. Burke, how are you today, pal? Good, Jeff. How are you? I uh, I took great delight. I'm, I'm I'm well. I took great delight watching the uh, the little preview on the weekend. I sent Josh a note about it of you and, and Josh gets off fishing. Uh, new feature for the Pittsburgh Penguins. What's the uh, what's the backstory on this one? Well, he, Josh is a, a regular host for us. He does our Canucks uh, or our Penguins uh, Canucks weekly update. He said that for years in Vancouver with Dan <laughs> Russell. He does our weekly uh, television show with the Acid GM, and uh, Josh is our host. And Sully does it one week, I do it one week, Hexy does it one week, and it's really popular. He's really good. So he suggested he heard I was into fishing, and he suggested that we do it in a fishing venue. So we did it sitting on a park bench with bobbers. I haven't fished with a bobber since I was in junior <laughs> high school. But it was fun. And um, didn't catch anything, but we heard some birds, saw some birds, and uh, – had a good visit. He he knows how to get people to talk, and and he's very professional. I've uh, I've known Getzoff now for a few years, and honestly, Berkey, I think that guy's going to be a star in the industry. Like I, I I know you love him in Pittsburgh, but this guy this guy is like national good. I think that's how good Josh Getzoff is. He's a he's a he's a real treasure. Um, let me get to some other treasures uh, as announced yesterday. Uh, the Sedins, whom I believe you drafted, if I'm not mistaken, I seem to have that story rattling around. I, did the, I? The, yeah, I think I think I may have heard that once or twice. I think you might have mentioned that in passing. Uh, Roberto Luongo, Daniel Alfredson, uh, Rika Salonen, and Herb Carnegie all go in. It is like, there's a lot of talent there. There's a lot of class there. There's a there's a whole lot of great uh, hockey people um, going into the uh, the Hockey Hall of Fame class of 2022. I'll, I'll start with the obvious one. Okay, so when you were scouting Berkey and then when you drafted the Sedins and you sort of you projected out, like, okay, how good are these guys going to be? How long is it going to take until you pop? I don't know if you ever got, you know, far enough in your own mind to say, here's what their careers are going to look like and we're going to be talking about them in the Hall of Fame conversation. But based on what you saw when you scouted and drafted the Sedins, what were your expectations for them? Well, it's a convoluted story because you know the truth, Jeff, is that we didn't like them initially. The first yep. hard, good, hard look we got uh, got of them was at the World Juniors in Winnipeg, and they were just okay. They had some good games, but they got knocked all over the place. The Canadians and Americans knocked them down about twenty times each. So, I told our scouts after that tournament, and I'll never forget it was that's for the genesis of the Pavel Bure trade was when we were leaving, Brian Murray and I, the late, great Brian and Murray and I, shared a cab leaving Winnipeg. 
And we started talking about Pavel Burry. He said, I need a, a goal scorer who can sell some tickets. I said, well, I got the guy. And a week later, we did that deal, or 10 days later. But I told our scouts when we got back to the hotel, I'm not drafting any. I'm not using the pick. We look like we'd have the third or fourth pick. We ended up with the third. I told our scouts, I don't like this draft. I don't like the first round. I don't like the twins. I'm trading the pick, which is devastating, you know, because the scouts hate that. They want, they want mm-hmm. a pick. So they were devastated, but everyone said we get it. And then it all changed when we went to the world championships. And thanks to Thomas Green, we, we looked hard at him there. What did you expect? Because, I mean, the, the the first couple of seasons, you know, we all watched him and said, we hope this works out, but we're not sure. Like, what? What did? how long yeah, did the, you think it was going to take for them to click in the NHL? Jeff, that, that was the reaction right after we did the deal. If you go back and look at the headlines, there were a lot of headlines and a lot of speculation. Hey, look, great points for creativity, good for Berkey, but let's see how this goes. Like, they weren't locked to be really good players. There was plenty of – I mean, the only reason we were able to make those deals is because everyone was willing to trade the picks. Rick Dudley's a sharp hockey guy. You think – he wouldn't look back and say, if it had been a sure bet, I would have said, no, I'm keeping one and you got to trade me three, which would have been a much more likely scenario. So, mm-hmm. um, no, there was lots of doubt about them. They weren't physically ready. They weren't mentally ready. They went back for a year. They came back. Daniel scored 20 as a rookie. But, no, so there's a lot of risk involved in that, a lot of chance involved. A lot of Me and my staff had to have nerves of steel to do that because it all happened on the floor. It all happened fast. Dave Nolanus, Thomas Cardine, we're all like, yep, do it. Do it right now. And I'm like, okay, we're doing it. Worked out great. And, you know, I was making this point to Elliot before he came on that one of the things that I always loved about the Sedines was in a world where, you know, hockey was a north-south game, up and down, up and down, up and down, these two guys were going east-west. They were going They were going across the ice with their play while everybody was sprinting up and down the ice. They they changed the way the game was played. They, they what you said is true, Jeff. And I remember the first time they did a faceoff play, and we we had had faceoff plays for decades in the NHL, just one or two. Like the center would say, "I'll tap the puck up the right winger, you go, and if I get it, you go." And then, but these guys had these elaborate plays where a guy would circle behind the net and then reappear on the far wall and get an open shot or do a pop-up to the top. He'd drop out off the face-off, pop-up, pop back down for a chance. So they had like six face-off plays when nobody had any or had just had one. The cycle game, they perfected the cycle game, the slap pass, the area pass, their mm-hmm. ability to pass the puck to vacant ice and have someone skate into it. Uh, unbelievable. But, yeah, north-south, like they, they were very content to slow the game down let people go past them and come back and pick up that open ice. I mean, they were phenomenal, but they were visionary. They were ahead of their times, and it took a while. You know what I, uh, and I still, to this day, when I see it, I think of the Sedines, and you know what play it is, Berkey? The high tip. Whenever I see the high tip, I just think of the say, oh, there's a Sedine play. Oh, there's a Sedine play. And that's probably never going to change for me. Never going to change. Yeah, the same thing. The slap pass, high tip, say the same thing. So a player ordinarily would... uh, would be down lower, moves out to the top of the slot, and Hank hammers it at him, and he tips it in. And it's a tip. The tip's 20 feet away. So you think, yeah. well, he'll be able to get that. But no, because it's going 90 miles an hour, 80 <laughs> miles an hour. And they yeah. and they, they change the direction on it. So, yeah, that's, that's one of their patented plays. 
Uh, I want to ask you about Herb Carnegie as well. And I had a chance before he passed to to, to be with Herb uh, a couple of different times, uh, once on the radio together and a couple of times off air. And just, I mean, first of all, his his daughter is is fantastic as well, and she's still a big part of the uh, the Carnegie Initiative, uh, as I know you are as well, Berkey. Um, do you have a couple of words about Herb Carnegie, who now takes his rightful place in the hall as a builder? Yes, I've, I've talked to people. I remember hearing about Herb Carnegie a long time ago, and we were involved with the decision to bring Willie O'Ree, I call him Mr. O'Ree, back. He was a security guard at the Hotel Coronado in San Diego, near the naval base there. And Bryant McBride, who's a great guy, found tracked down Mr. O'Ree and talked him into coming back and being a development guy with us. You know, and, and subsequently went to the Hall of Fame as a builder. But I remember asking Mr. O'Ree, who's the best hockey player, African-Canadian hockey player, you ever saw? And he saw, he, and Mr. O'Ree was very honest. He said there were several players better than I was, but he said the best was Herb Carney. Harry Sinden told me the same thing. He said, you know, this is a guy that could have played in any era in any league. So this is a guy who earns re- great respect as a player. Color barrier kept him out. That's a, a right that should be wrong. But the reason Mr. Carnegie is being honored isn't just the fact that he was a great player. It's the work he's done since. Uh, he started youth hockey programs all over great, the GTHL and uh, yes. greater Toronto area. But just a phenomenal guy. I am involved with the Carnegie Project. Very proud to be involved with that. So this is a great class in terms of the players, but in terms of Mr. Carnegie as well. Yeah, no, it's a uh, it's it's a wonderful class. Roberto Luongo as well, Daniel Alfredson, uh, Rika Salonen, and I know that there was like from from my corner, I was thinking, okay, Carolyn Roulette is getting in. This is one of the greatest of, of all time, and I was, you know, exchanging texts with her over the weekend. She said, "Don't forget, there's a lot of European women here that that aren't represented yet in the in the Hockey Hall of Fame." So that um, that makes uh, a lot of sense seeing Rika Salonen go in. Uh, to the hall. Uh, I want to ask you about, and we heard Julian Brisebois, GM of the Tampa Bay Lightning, speaking this morning. Um, I want to ask you about the GM of the Year award. Now, I personally think that this is probably Brisebois to lose here, considering you know the seasons that Tampa has had, and you know uh, when it was voted on, and how he hasn't won it before. But I don't want you to talk about the GM of the Year award. I want to talk about the origins of it. Because I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Berkey, this was your idea going back to 1993, which I think was your first year in the league. I'm not 100% sure. What's the genesis of this one? Well, I was, uh, we were talking, I was working for Gary Bevan. was my first year. 92-93 was my year in Hartford. Then I joined the league in 93. I remember Gary Bettman, the first week I was there, he was such a visionary. And he called me and he said, I want you to tell me one thing we could do to make the game dramatically better. I don't need an answer right now. You can sleep on it. And I said, I can answer right now. And he said, what? I said, play fewer games, which I still believe is the number one thing we should do to improve our product. And I've said that since I could, since I could breathe, that 82 games is too much. So he said, okay, assuming we can't do that, he said, what else? And I said, I don't really have an idea. Like, I was out of ideas. I just had one good one. <laughs> but then later I said to Gary, I said, you know, we give all these awards. And there was talk about adding, creating the Richard Trophy and adding this. We have a, another defenseman trophy for the best defensive defenseman. And there's all this talk. And I said to Gary, how come there's not a GM of the Year award? 
And Gary said, well, I don't think the owners want to create an award that would just cost them money and doesn't really, you know, <laughs> you'd have to do a regular, well, you'd have to do a regular yeah. season and you could lose in the first round. And he, he raised a lot of good problems, pragmatic answers. But I said, I think it's absurd that we have the Jack Adams trophy and we don't acknowledge the GM. So this went on. I pushed this with Gary for 15 years, 18 years, whatever it was. And then finally, I think Gary just got tired of me and, and then saw some merit to it, too, and said, you know, we do honor everybody else but the GM. Let's do it. So Gary said, let's, let's do this award. It was great. And I never won it, obviously, because they started <laughs> doing it too soon. So, um, but it's nice. A number, of the, the number of the winners have thanked me at their, at their acceptance speech and said, I want to thank Brian Burfuss for it. If he didn't know better, he'd be like, why are they thanking him? He never won it. <laughs> but they uh they they listened and they put it in and i think if they're going to acknowledge excellence at every level in the nhl they should acknowledge excellence at the gm level so i think it's great yeah no listen we talk whether it's here or whether it's on the podcast that i do with elliot like a lot of it revolves around the question how does this work and the people that you know are the architects of it um, are the are the managers, and I think it only makes sense that they are recognized and rewarded in some significant way. You know, I, I'm always let me ask you one more GM question here, Brian, because you know you go back to that title for a, a number of decades. Is it harder now to be a general manager? You know, it's you know triple capped league, etc. There are more team presidents, there are more hands on the wheel than ever before. Or do you think it's more difficult because there are more people that have a hand in it and you are constrained by things like team salary caps and rookie salary caps and individual percentage salary caps, et cetera. Is it more difficult now or less difficult to be a general manager in the NHL? It's way more, way, way, way more. It's glacially harder in terms of the weight that goes on the GM. So I want to go back real quick because you always say this correctly, Jeff, but I think some people listening might miss the nuance. We call ourselves managers, yep. not general managers. In the NHL, they've always referred to themselves as managers. So if someone's listening and say, Jeff just called a manager, that's not baseball where they have a manager. We call ourselves managers. So being a manager, my first job as a manager was in 92, 93 in Hartford, 21 teams, so if you miss the playoffs, you just make a couple little trades and you're in. 16 out of the 21 made it. <laughs> now you got now you got 32 teams. Yep. And you have triple the media pressure, triple the, the coverage, maybe quadruple in some markets. So you've got a much more daunting task. Mathematically, it's more difficult. You've got way more challenges with the media. Everything you do is second-guessed and criticized. And you've got a whole new group of owners, many of whom are not patient at all. Don't understand the math, don't like it. I remember at one of the expansion meetings saying to the GMs, everyone keeps raising their hand to vote for expansion, and that's great. That's another GM job for us. Great. But you understand the math changes. Every time we add a team, the math changes. Mm -hmm. So you've got 32 teams in the league. You are You should win a cup every 32 years. I'm positive none of our owners understand that math. I'm mm -hmm. absolutely convinced. <laughs> so you should be in a conference final, what, every 16 years, right? I'm not a mathematician. You sure. should win around every, what, four years or whatever. So you can break it down. The math is not consistent or does not overlap with the with the owner's patience levels in the NHL. 
And so with, with the pandemic, we had a year of patience, not many coaching changes, not many GM changes. Then we finally solved the pandemic, and what happens? Bam, nuclear waste. Like, mm. it blew up coaches, GMs. They're still not filling all of the vacancies. Right. So, no, it's uh, it's much harder than it was, much harder. The volume's turned up much higher. The math doesn't work. Um, you're, you're criticized much more quickly and much more severely. So God bless the owners that understand the math. Let me ask you about the Penguins before we wrap up. Um, there is a couple of big days on the horizon for Pittsburgh. Um, the NHL draft, the 7th and the 8th in Montreal, there's, you know, we're all wondering about Chris Letang. We're all wondering about Evgeny Malkin. Uh, the Brian Rust deal was a nice bit of business um, by by your squad. If you would take a sort of snapshot, then as much as you can share with us, uh, with us as possible, how would you describe where this organization is at right now? Well, nothing, nothing's changed with regard to our personnel. They're... Um, we want to sign both players. Everyone should be emphatically clear on that. We would like to bring both players back, but they got to come back at, at term and contract dollars. That makes sense. So we want both players back. They've got to come back with, with the length of the contract and the amounts of the salaries that make sense. And if not, they're not coming back. And that that's what people should be very clear on is not that we're, we're not interested in having them back. We want them back. But they've got to come back at numbers that make sense and don't leave us cap, cap handcuffed. And if that doesn't happen, they're not coming back. So it's very simple for us. We want them back. They've got to come back on terms that make sense or they won't be back. So we should know, I'm guessing, in the next little bit with both players, we've made determined efforts to meet with and to sign Chris Letang. Uh, less determined with Malkin only because we got to know how much money we have to work with. And we got to put this jigsaw puzzle together. So, less, less, uh, very direct discussions with the agent for Evgeny Malkin, but less, uh, less intense in terms of there's got to be some sequence here. One has to sign, then the other, and then, or maybe neither of them. So, we'll see. But it's coming to a head soon. But that is interesting. It's all coming to a head with Malkin and Latang, and there's a sequence uh, that it needs to go through if one or both of them, or none of them, are going to be back. Uh, thanks to Brian Burke for stopping by talking about the Hall of Fame, the GM of the year, and what's happening right now with the Pittsburgh Penguins, most specifically with Chris Letang and Yevgeny Malkin. Uh, Joe Smith joins me in a couple of moments. He covers the Tampa Bay Lightning for The Athletic. Uh, we'll talk about the future of some assistant coaches, uh, injury update, where the laundry list that was, and also Andrew Cogliano of the Stanley Cup champion Avalanche in a couple of moments at the bottom of the hour. Looking forward to that. Hour two is coming up. Merrick Show, Sportsnet Radio Network. The smartest takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis and Stephen Brunt. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the program. Hour two of the Merrick Show here across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Glad to have you aboard today. Bottom of the hour, Andrew Cogliano of the uh, Stanley Cup champion Colorado Avalanche will be uh, dropping by the program. What a career it's been for him, hey? With the Ironman streak, how it was stalled, 
The thought in his mind, perhaps, that will he ever really get a chance to do this? How close is he going to get? Uh, trade deadline acquisition by Joe Sackick and the Avs, and he now turns into a story where, as I was mentioning in hour one, if you go back to all those interviews on the ice, you know, Kyle Bukowskis, David Amber, Elliot Friedman, talking to all the players on the ice, all those Avs players, as they celebrate their cup, how many mention Cogliano specifically went out of their way to mention Andrew Cogliano? We'll talk to him at the bottom of the hour. Meantime, uh, what a laundry list uh, Joe Smith laid out for us today of injuries um, of the uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning. We knew it would be a pretty lengthy list, but wow, this one is uh, this one is horror show. Uh, Joe Smith uh, covers the Tampa Bay Lightning, beat writer for the uh, Athletic, covering the uh, the Bolts, and he joins me now. Joe, how are you today? Doing well. How about you? Uh, I'm doing good. So still some, still plenty of business on the horizon here for the Tampa Bay Lightning. But um, you know, the the one thing, uh, as you tweeted this morning, uh, the laundry list of injuries. Like I think we all knew that it was going to be lengthy, and, and that we'd cringe uh, at some of them. Uh, but did you have any idea that it was going to be this long with this many, you know, key injuries to key players? Yeah, I mean, I think we all assumed after everybody, all the players were telling us, you're like, you're not going to believe what these guys played through, that was going to be some pretty serious stuff. But uh, just to have, you know, Julian Breezeball, like, read them off like a laundry list today, um, you know, guys who injured one shoulder in last round and another shoulder in the next in the second round, and then, like, guys playing through just the whole entire playoffs. And, of course, Brayden Point, you know, playing, trying to play with a, a torn quad or coming back from a torn quad was the biggest name um, in there, like a mangled finger for me. I'm not sure what that is, but it doesn't sound What does that good. mean? What does that mean? What does that mean, Doctor Smith? What's mangled finger? I got to go, go back to my mid school days. Doesn't sound like it's a fully functional hand there after blocking a shot, uh, and he played another couple rounds with it. So, you know, I, I know Colorado had their share of injuries too. No Cup team goes uh, unscathed, um, but I think that's why when guys were mentioning and Cooper's mentioning this is a team that they'll remember forever, uh, and you know, I think. You know, if you guys actually might be more proud of this team than maybe some of the teams that even won the cup because of what they sacrificed and went through and how close they came to getting there, uh, I think that's mm-hmm. where the, you start to see why uh, in that sacrifice there. You know, there was, um, you know, I think we were all wondering, okay, which injury, you know, which, what was the straw that was going to break the camel's back here? Like, which one... Which one was going to do it? You know, we saw a point and we had a good idea about some of the other players. But it seemed as if when when Sorelli injured himself in the Avs series, and as Breezebaugh mentioned, the uh, the AC joint sprain in the uh, in the Rangers series, but when he hurt himself in that series, it almost, it almost seemed as if the Sorelli injury, like that was the moment where like no matter what Tampa was able to do, that was the one they couldn't get over. Like that was the one hurdle, Joe, that was, that was too high, even for the defending two time Stanley cup champions. Do you think that was accurate to say? I think that's fairly accurate to say. I mean, you know, you already lose your number one center in Braden point, right? And you still have Stamkos, but you know, Sorelli is the guy who is your shutdown guy, the one on McKinnon and the, you know, he doesn't score a lot. He did a few, a few in this game. But, you know, playing with one bad shoulder is one thing. Playing with two bad shoulders is perhaps near impossible for a guy with play his, his style. He wasn't taking face-offs. Force Hagel to take all the draws. And, you know, um, at some point, you know, they were probably going to run out of gas there. And they were still within, you know, one goal game and four of those games in the series. So they still had a chance. But there just wasn't enough um, from everybody to, to get there. They just had a lot of guys leading the way, but they – 
Mm-hmm. They could have used a, a goal from, you know, one of the depth guys going forward just to get one of them in to help them out. Um, but, yeah, give Anthony credit for fighting through it and, and playing, even though he wasn't near 100%. You know, was there – I mean, listen, uh, we all saw what happened with Braden Point in that in that Maple Leaf series and then saw the, you know, the uh, the subsequent attempted comeback and just, like, no power in the stride, as you've, uh, as you've alluded to as well. Um, was there, this, this may sound weird, but was there one guy that you looked at or spoke to or wondered about and maybe said, how are you not hurt or how are you not more severely hurt? I mean, the story of the Tampa Bay lightning, I mean, the visuals of, you know, one guy coming out of the room after getting others stitched up or bandaged up while another one goes in, everybody blocking shots, Steven Stamkos, you know, with the the Johnny Bauer kick save and a beauty sticking his foot out. I mean, it's it's some some pretty frightening stuff and career limiting stuff when you get hit by as many pucks as, as Tampa has. Was there one guy, Joe, or maybe a couple of guys that you look at and you say, "How are you not more?" I guess the term of the day is mangled. How were you not more mangled through all of this? Uh, I think the guy that was surprised that wasn't on that list today was Eric Chernak. Um, the guy's like a puck magnet all playoff yeah. long. He left like multiple games, you know, and even in the, in the final, and you're like, the guy's, I know they call him Drago for a reason. The guy's, you know, built like a truck and so tough, but I thought he'd have some sort of fracture in his foot or something like that that was serious. Um, you know, I thought he was one of those guys. Sam Coast, I thought he might have something just because of how hard he mentioned he played and the block shots that he had. Um, and one guy I was curious about was Alex Kalorn because he had no goals in the playoffs, which is a big goal kind of player in the mm-hmm. postseason. And I wondered if something was bothering him. I mean, I'm sure something was bothering him, but it wasn't on that list of, you know, the, the laundry list of injuries. But, but Eric Chernak, to me, I was, I was stunned when I, and he wasn't brought up uh, as far as those names of, of the more serious injuries. You know this uh, this Tampa team has been remarkable, and I don't like. I, I, I think I'm like you, Joe. Like I don't want the. Well, I don't want to write the obituary on the Tampa Bay Lightning because I don't think that they're done, and I could still see Tampa coming back next season and, you know, getting to the the conference final, winning the conference final, getting to the cup, and maybe even winning uh, a, a Stanley Cup here. That's I think how highly we all think about the Tampa Bay Lightning. Um, what need what needs to happen? To this team, actually, you know what? Let me let me ask you a different question. Once upon a time, the Tampa Bay Lightning chased the President's Trophy, and that was it. It was full steam ahead. And we're going to be the top team, and we're going to get that trophy, and that means a lot to this organization. And then they flamed out against Columbus in four. And then, as Stamkos mentioned to me and Elliot at the Players Tour, the mantra seemed to change and morph into "We know what to do. We just need to make it in." Like, once we make it in, we know how to handle our business. We've been there before. We know what we need to do. We're a self-motivating bunch. We know how to handle that. And that's great when you're winning. And you can say those things and do those things. But now that they've come up short against Colorado, I'm curious what type of Tampa team comes back. Is it, that st- is it still the same team that says casually we just need to get in and then we need then we know how to turn the switch on or you know do we see an angry tampa team a team that's pissed off that they just lost in the stanley cup final they think that they should have won a third stanley cup and became a new age dynasty in the salary cap era uh or do we see the casual look let's not get ahead of ourselves let's just make it in and then do our damage which tampa team shows up to start next season joe yeah i think 
it's just a fair to say it's a mixture of both in the sense. Like, I don't think they're going to come into the regular season saying we need to go 82-0 and, and win this whole thing. I think there will be a sense of guys being ticked off because they know how much they gave up and sacrificed to come so close to the ceiling. And I think Stan just mentioned that he says it kind of sucks that you get to know exactly what Kyle is going to go through the next couple of weeks, the parades, the, the parties, the fun, and like you know you, what that's like and you know you're missing out on it. So I think there is going to be a little tip on their shoulder. They're going to say that no one thinks they're going to be able to come back again and use that as motivation. Um, but I, I do think the style which they play in the playoffs, they can't do that during the season. They can't do it for a full year with the guys yeah. that are getting a little older. That They can't go to that well in game 14 against Buffalo and do it. So I think in a sense that they will have that chip and they will have that belief, but I think the regular season you know, has to be about finding their identity, playing their game, and just getting through it. I mean, they were they didn't play at the line much advantage at all in the playoffs in all four rounds. They still came a couple wins away. Um, so I think the focus is just to be able to find that game, integrate new players that will probably be in the lineup um, and get ready because you can play that 71 playoff games in three years. It eventually adds up, so you can't go to that well every time during the season and expect to be able to do that again for another 25. You know, I really enjoyed your piece on, um, you know, uh, how the Tampa Bay Lightning uh, could come back and still have Andre Palat uh, in the mix. I know he's been, I know all the players love him. I know the organization loves him. He's one of theirs. He's a great story, a seventh round pick. Uh, I used to watch him in the QMJHL playing with Sean Couturier and would say to myself, you know, this guy's kind of like a mini Hosa here, the way he was, was playing in the Q, and he's, he's transitioned that into the NHL game as well. So I'm sure the desire to sign Palat is there. It, it's going to take some some salary cap wizardry and maybe a move uh, to make it happen. The, I want to get to Palat in a second, but the, the one guy – you know, who's poised here to to have a really big payday, who's done himself a lot of good, even though I'm sure he wants to stay, is Nick Paul. Um, I don't know, you know, if, if you look at, if you're Nick Paul and you say, this is my one shot to make some good money here and help to set myself and my family up, this is his chance to do it. His stock is really high. He's had an incredible playoff run with the Tampa Bay Lightning. That's the one guy that, as much as I'm sure he'd like to come back, and Tampa would love to have him back. I don't know that I can see Nick Paul in the mix next year for the Tampa Bay Lightning. Joe, agree or disagree? You make a lot of good points there, and, and I think fans will love to say that they saw him in a Florida man hat today at the interview and thought that was a good sign. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, he, he said all the right things, and, and, and he obviously he loved to come back. Everything about the organization, he just raved about it. And I think for him, the, the selling point for the Lightning is the fact that he got tasted the playoffs for the first time, and he absolutely loved it. He's like, I want to be in the playoffs again. And so I think regardless of who makes the offer in the offseason, it has to be a team that's going to be a contender. Um, mm-hmm. I think his first choice is to come back to Tampa Bay, but I agree. This is a life-changing kind of deal, right? He made, I think, one in some change the last couple of years. He's had to bounce around 11 times for the AHL at HL to make it. Um, so this would be a chance to set yourself up. So the difference is, you, if you get $3 million from Tampa, is it better than $4 million somewhere else? Like, how big is the disparity in terms of terms and years? That'll be the decision you have to make in the next couple of weeks. But uh, I know Julian Bluesball will try like heck to get him and 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 pull out in the lineup uh, next year. Uh, I think they did themselves a lot of good with Nick Paul in terms of showing what it takes and showing what playoffs and their culture and their organization is like. So I think he has a lot of things to think about. But I don't think anybody would blame him if he gets a bigger payday and a longer term from somewhere else and says, hey, I can mm-hmm. win it here too. And, and this is the world to set me up for life. 
And I don't think anyone would blame them. Like, I understand the idea of not messing when you're happy, not messing around with your situation. But then there are, you know, the realities that this is a job and you try to get the most compensation while still trying to remain happy uh, and successful as you can. The, the thing about Nick Paul is, I mean, now, perhaps more so than ever, Joe, everybody's looking for these players. Like you, you look like around the NHL, everybody wants these types of players. And I think it was, again, this is still the fumes of the Yanni Gord line. All of a sudden, every team around the NHL, and we saw it this year with Tampa going out to get Brandon Hagel from Chicago. I mean, how many teams out there are actively looking for someone like Nick Paul? It's, it's more than a handful. Uh, as you well know, these types of players don't come available very often. And when they do... You know, there's, you know, big competition for them. I remember, you know, uh, how Calgary was able to, you know, outduel the Boston Bruins for Blake Coleman. That's a well-told story that's out there. I mean, there's going to be some significant competition for the services of Nick Paul. And then look at the deadline, too. You know, the Rangers were in it. You know, you go by Boston. I could imagine, you know, Toronto would love to yep. look at him, too. Like, you know, a lot of guys that would love to have him. It doesn't matter if they can fit him and, and get the right piece. But you're right. I mean, you know. You realize that you win with your stars, but you also need role players that are versatile that can be gamers, right? And he's turned into a big-time gamer with the way he's played in the playoffs. He showed it. And uh, if that, if those guys don't grow on trees either. That's why they're so expensive and why you saw mm-hmm. Barclay Goudreau get a six-year deal for 3.6, I think it was, because uh, those guys are so valued. You think Nick Paul gets something similar to what Barclay Goudreau got? Well, he doesn't have the two cups um, that he had, but... I think it's it's a fair closer around that compensation, you know, would be a thought that I'm sure they would go into. Um, you know, Nick has a couple different, um, you know, maybe some offensive output. Um, but I think overall, I would be surprised if that could be a comp that they, you know, start with considering, not, not that they were junior teammates, two junior linemates as well, but uh, just the fact that they're, they're built and, and what they can do in the playoffs. Uh, let me ask you about, Assistant coaches, whether it's Derek Lalonde, whether it's Jeff Halperin, you know, after um, after uh, uh, Blasio was fired, uh, Jeff Blasio was fired by Steve Eisenman uh, with Detroit. You know, it was almost like I think it might have been either later that day or the next day. Um, someone had mentioned to me like, "Heads up on on Derek Lalonde. This is this is someone that Steve Eisenman a knows very well, obviously." Uh, respects as part of the John Cooper's bench and C um, could see Steve Eisenman actively pursuing as the next head coach of the Detroit Red Wings. I think that clearly, you know, Jeff Halpern's in that mix too. Um, is Tampa bracing for having to hire one or maybe two new assistants next year? I think they, I mean, I think they're well aware that, you know, there's some interest, I think both in Halpern and the line, and it would make sense that Detroit would be that, you know, that team with their knowledge of those two guys. And so I think they are, you know, anytime you have a, a, a successful organization, you have teams that want your players, they want your staff, and they under, and they get that. So I think they would be prepared to, to hire somebody else. That staff and how inclusive and clever they are is a big reason why they've won these cups. But uh, more aligned, I think, is ready. He's coached at most every level of the head coaching position and a really good motivator. And, you know, the actually from those two. And, and Halpern has more of the playing pedigree and that name recognition and, you know, a guy who's coached, you know, the power play Kucherov and Samsov has to help him, you know, in terms of learning how to, you know, coach some of these high end skilled players. So both would be, you know, it would surprise me if they end up being the head coach of the Detroit Red Wings. And I think the Lightning could go on ahead and, you know, bring somebody in. And who knows, maybe that's Jeff Blaschel if that works out the way it does. Hmm. 
Uh, let, me, let, me, let me close on this one. What do you expect this summer to be like for the Tampa Bay Lightning? We've covered Andre Palat. We've talked about Nick Paul. You know, I, I wonder about, you know, if they just offer Jan Ruda term, but at a, at, a, at, a, at a lower number, whether that works for him as it has for other players um, to stay in Tampa. What do you think this offseason will be like for Julian Brisebois? Well, I think it'll be really busy the next two, three weeks as far as, you know, it all depends on who they can think they can sign up from their own team. Um, but there is a chance that they might, you know, have to deal one of their guys, you know, to create some room if they want to keep, uh, you know, Paul and Polat. And so that would be the only kind of surprise and wrinkle that I would see in their offseason is that kind of thing. So they don't have to make any moves in free agency. They don't have to make many moves. Trade guys get under the cap. But if you have to think about they want to keep both those guys, you might have to chase them by your roster um, that has some cap number to, to make room. And so I don't think there'll be a lot of fireworks, but there'll be a lot of, you know, take care of your own as far as, you know, you know keeping your own free agents. But uh, I think there could be a potential for if you need to make a move to maybe a little bit of a surprise one. And, and real quick before I let you go, you have a thought on Pat Maroon. The streak ends at three Stanley Cups. Yeah, the streak ends at three. Um, you know, obviously, you know, it's such a tremendous big part of the room. Like you just in a room full, I guess character. He's the biggest character in that room. He brings life and swagger to it. So um, obviously, you know, and it did end the way he wanted to. But you know, he resigned early this year, a couple more years. So he'll be a big part of this room and the culture going forward. And maybe they'll bring it back next year and see what they can do. We shall see. Uh, Joe, always a delight. Great job covering the Bolts. Uh, I know your work's not done. Still more, uh, still more, still more things to file. Uh, hope you get a chance to uh, to have some kind of enjoyable off season. Uh, it's been a long run covering Tampa. That's the nature of covering Stanley Cup teams, as you know. And uh, you've done an excellent job, and, and always appreciate our conversations. Thanks so much for this again. Uh, be well uh, and enjoy the next few weeks of uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning making moves. Thanks for this. Sounds good. Thanks so much for having me. Good talking to you, too. There he is, Joe Smith, who covers the Tampa Bay Lightning for The Athletic, one of the more, one of the more intriguing teams here in this offseason. Um, uh, I know the tongue-in-cheek move is like, oh, yeah, they're just going to put someone on LTIR and they're going to bring everybody back and it's going to be that chicanery again. Uh, can't see that happening uh, this time around. Um, but it will be interesting to see what Julian Brisebois can come up with and, and who they can bring back. Like, there, there could be some moves... Like he could, Breezebaugh could make some moves. Maybe it's with the back end and create some cap space to bring Andre Palat back. Uh, I think they all understand how much better he makes this team. And again, you always, I think it always does your organization well to reward players that have been there. How do you want to describe it? From the root to the fruit? Like right from the beginning. Like he is a very late pick. Andre Palat is a seventh round pick. I know there's some really good seventh rounders around the NHL. And we think of Joe Pavelski right out of the gates. But Andre Palat's a seventh rounder as well. Henrik Lundqvist, by the way, folks, is a seventh rounder. Uh, And Palat has essentially grown right through the system. And I think you want to reward that. I think most teams find value in rewarding that, in rewarding their own. I think that if you're Jeff Finnick or anyone with the Tampa Bay Lightning organization, you probably are hoping that there's some way you can keep Andre Palat and somehow he ends up spending his entire career with one team. I can see a lot of those players on Tampa spending their entire career with one team. 
the realities of the salary cap, and most specifically, a flat salary cap, as we've made this point before, is the most challenging for Tampa. And it may be the most impressive thing that we've seen in this last couple of seasons in the NHL is how Tampa's been able to not just win Stanley Cups and get to the final, but do it in a flat salary cap universe. They didn't have the luxury of, oh, cap's going up a couple of mil. Oh, 2.5, okay, that's going to give us some more wiggle room. We can budget for the cap getting higher and higher. So this Vasilevsky contract kicking in, this Kucherov contract kicking in is going to be buffered a little bit by a bump in the salary cap. They haven't been able to do that. And they've had to make really difficult Detroit choices. And yes, they had the uh, the situation with Nikita Kucherov uh, and LTIR and being off the books, off the salary cap, um, and what that meant for them in the playoffs a couple of seasons ago. I get that. But that is a... Let me put it this way. That is a risky game. Just ask the Vegas Golden Knights how that works out. And I don't think that anybody was trying to do anything underhanded, either on Tampa or on Vegas. I've seen no evidence of it. Did Kucherov come back and look great? Well, yeah, he did. He's Nikita Kucherov. You know, the uh, the Mark Stone situation with the Vegas Golden Knights was a really challenging one. And let's face it, too, general managers don't want to spend too long with their salary cap and LTIR. They just don't because you don't accrue cap space. We've been through this before. Uh, LTIR as a tactic generally is best used for teams that need something to get to the salary cap floor, picking up dead contracts. Um, It's a good luxury to have, but only as a short-term fix to get you through things. Anyway, I want to bore you with the, uh, the, the minutia of LTIR. All I'm really saying is here, they have a desire to keep Andre Palat. That is obvious. I think internally there's probably an acknowledgement that as much as they want to keep Nick Paul in the organization and Nick Paul wants to stay, barring any significant moves, and who knows, maybe all this gets you know, massaged with the move uh, with, I don't know, Alex Kalorn, which, again they really do see as a key piece because Alex Kalorn's name has been out there before. What was it, two years ago at the draft? We all thought he was going to Buffalo. Oh, yeah, Kalorn's going to be a saver. And then never happened. He's clearly identified as one of the key pieces for this, this team, as is Palat. And I think they understand that Nick Paul will probably push comes to shove, um, head to greener, and by greener I mean money, pastures, uh, around the NHL while still being able to find himself on a team that has a premium on winning and a chance to win Stanley Cups. I just think that he's priced himself out. I just think that he's priced himself out of Tampa. I think he's probably going to be, you know, he'll probably go down as a really good rental by this team, a really effective rental who helped them all the way through, specifically in that opening round series against the Toronto Maple Leafs where he really distinguished himself on the large hockey map helping to to slam daggers into Toronto. But at the end of it, I can see him shuffling. Uh, I do wonder about Jan Ruda, and the big question is Andre Palat, as we keep coming back to. Uh, let's get Matty Marchese on the program here. How are you today, Matty, my producer? Uh, I'm good. I don't want to be Julianne Breezebois this offseason based on uh, looking at cap friendly. I'll tell you that because there's some big decisions that have to be made. I get it, but you know what? Do we? Does anybody? 
See, whenever I, whenever I complain, not complain, whenever I sort of document like how difficult the job Julian Brisebois has, and over the past couple of seasons he's had difficult jobs, um, how many other general managers wish they were in the exact same situation having a difficult decision? We got two Stanley Cups and they just went to the final. I know yeah, it's no, a heavy I, lift I he it. has in front of him, but like, you know, when you're, ha- when you're having a bad day, just look down at your fingers and look at your rings. <laughs> yeah. Just one, two Stanley Cups. It's, what, what's what's going to be what's okay? Berkey, what's Berkey always say when he goes to pump gas? He's still got two rings. Is that mm-hmm. is that the line? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, look at my Anaheim Ducks 2007 ring. Uh, so Kalorin's the guy that makes the most sense. Like he's at 4.45, and we talk about you know the the middle contracts. Those are always the ones that end up kind of hurting you in the long run, unless you have a high price guy that doesn't you know, perform up to the standard that the contract states he should. But you've got Kucherov at nine and a half and points at nine and a half. And Vasilevsky is at uh, is at nine and a half. Like, that, I mean, those guys perform. I get all that. But it, it is a contract like Kalorn at 4.45 because they're not getting rid of Anthony Sorelli at 4.8. We know that. So if they're going to make uh, something yeah, work, no it's got to be Kalorn. Kalern seems to be the guy, but then I keep coming back to that same point. That's one of the guys they've identified as a key piece. Like, it's going to be painful either way. You know, you're either going to lose Andre Palat or you're going to, you know, lose someone else. Like you're going to you're going to solve a problem in one area by creating a problem in another area. Yeah, and that, uh, like, that's always that that oh that never ends well. Yeah, the guy that I wondered about, but he does have a no trade, and I know that people are going to go, oh, no, you're stupid for suggesting this, but I do wonder about Ryan McDonough. Oh, man, I love – he – him and Chernock – okay, let me put it this way. I love Victor Hedman. Victor Hedman is one of my favorite players in the NHL, but do you know who got top assignment against top competition all season mm-hmm. long? Yep. McDonough and Chernock. Oh, I did. Oh, now, I didn't you ask might say, him. wait a minute, America, are you, are you making the case to move Victor Hedman? No, I'm no, not making the no. case to move Victor Hedman. All I'm saying is there's – Victor Hedman takes a lot of the headlines when, it, when we're discussing the blue line, and he should, and he'll always be in consideration for the Norris, and he should, and he's one of the best defensemen in the NHL. And, you know, Kale McCarr is, you know, quickly taking the mantle as the top defenseman in the entire NHL. But Victor Hedman's right there too, thank you very much. All I'm saying is the top assignment this season, if you look at deployment by John Cooper, it's McDonough and Chernak. Yeah. I did I did want to ask you quickly about Hedman because I know we're going to get to a break, but um, oh. I was kind of surprised that there was no injury there. A little I bit too, yeah. yeah Wasn't, his best I, I really, Wasn't his best final. Wasn't his best you, final. And you know what I really noticed about his game is he was – when the puck would say go back into the zone and he was ahead of his D partner and the puck was on his side, his D partner was doing a lot of the heavy lifting to go back and get the puck. And that's why I was convinced that there was an injury Mm. because he was not skating the same way as we saw throughout the year. I mean, I know it's the playoffs and whatever, but there were some egregious moments where you look and go, that's not the same Victor Hedman that I saw. Yeah, you know what the drag is too? Because we all like it. I think I'm not, listen, I'm not the only one. We all love Victor Hedman. I think... um... I think one of the drags is we're going to walk away from this year's edition of the Stanley Cup final. And what's our last image of Victor Hedman going to be arguing with the officials over an icing? Yeah. Yeah. Which was, which was not an icing by the way. No, no, it's not. No, that was honestly, that was, you know, Tampa fans don't want to hear it, but that was the right call. 
Sorry, and it I'm, was. I mean, it, it sucked for Tampa because you're thinking, okay, offensive zone faceoff, here we go. But that was the right call. Yep. All right. Uh, so you gave me the cue. You gave me the clue that it's time to go. It's a very – I love it when you come on because there's always one sort of producer element that you sneak in like, oh, I've only got a couple of seconds here because I know you got to get the break. And I'm like, <laughs> I do? I just want to blow through stop signs here and mess up your schedule. Uh, we'll hit a break. Andrew Cogliano of the Colorado Avalanche. After 1,140 regular season games and 116 playoff games, Andrew Cogliano can now call himself a Stanley Cup champion. Uh, Andrew Cogliano joins me in moments as the Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the program. Across the Sportsnet Radio Network, it is Jeff Merrick and the Jeff Merrick Hockey Show. Glad to have you aboard today. Standing by for Andrew Cogliano of the uh, Stanley Cup champion, Colorado Avalanche. And it is always interesting to hear the on-ice interviews immediately after the Stanley Cup is won and to hear who other players bring up and who they're happy for. And the lion's share of players... Uh, on the ice after Colorado won on Sunday night, a lot of players mentioned Andrew Cogliano, who was, you know, played 18 regular season games and then 16 playoff games. So it's not as if he played, you know, any significant amount of time with the Colorado Avalanche. But the one thing that, and I was mentioning this in hour one, the one thing that I've learned about NHL players over the years that I've that have worked in this position is they really value games played and how long you've been in the game. Um, and Andrew Cogliano is someone that's played 1,140 regular season games, another 116 in the playoffs, and he can now call himself a Stanley Cup champion. Andrew Cogliano joins me now. Andrew, first of all, congratulations, and uh, thanks so much for doing this. How's the last couple of days been? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Um, no, it's been great, obviously. Um you know, we're just trying to, you know, got back from uh, from Tampa and um, here now we have some things planned, obviously, with the parade and um, yep. things with the rink tomorrow. And um, um, so, you know, we're, 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 uh, we're kind of going as it goes. I have two, two little girls, so obviously got to uh, yep. be a dad and, um, and, um, but it's been, it's been awesome, obviously an amazing feeling and, and something that, um, yeah. Something pretty special. At, at what point, man? There's so much to get into with you. And uh, listen, uh, I think I speak on behalf of a lot of people. This is this is long time coming for you, and I'm I'm sure that maybe you know you you wondered if it was ever gonna you know fi- you're ever gonna find yourself in a situation to win the Stanley Cup, and it's the ultimate trophy, and your name will always be on it. And you can go to Young in Front and Hockey Hall of Fame and look at your name and bring your daughters, and you know there's Dad's name there, and it's a it's a beautiful hockey moment. Um, did you have any idea? I don't know if you've uh, if you've gone back to watch the broadcast, but whether it's Kyle Bukowskis or David Amber or Elliot Friedman doing the interviews on the ice, there were so many Avalanche players that mentioned your name, like right away. Oh, I'm really happy for Cogs. I'm really happy for Cogs. Really happy for Cogs. Did you have any idea how much people were talking about you? You know, right afterwards when they were doing their interviews. You know what? No, I, I had a people couple people tell me and um 
you know, kind of, you know, reach out to me and, and let me know, you know, the good things my teammates were saying. Um, I haven't had a chance to watch it. I, I, I think someone taped it for me, you know, back home in Canada. So, um, yeah. you know, I think that's a special time for me to kind of, you know, maybe sit down and watch it and, and enjoy it. But, um, yeah, you know, at the end of the day, for me, you know, that's the best possible thing you could have as an athlete and as a, especially as a hockey player, you know, really, you know, I've, I've been in the league a long time. I've been very fortunate. I've been very blessed with, with my career, Um, you know, but to win a Stanley cup and to have, you know, your teammates, you know, talk highly about you and, and have that joy. And, and, you know, for me, you know, I knew when I got the, 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 the cup, one thing I wanted to do was I wanted to raise it in front of my teammates and, you know, a couple of pictures I have of their reaction. That's, that's the thing I'll remember. That's, that's the thing I'll, I'll hold dearly for the rest of my life. Um, was their reaction, you know, the joy and the genuine feeling that they had towards me. And, you know, that's something special. And that's something that that's probably why the reason why I play the game and, you know, why I've played the game for so long. And, and, um, and there's no better feeling than that. That's 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 what you want to feel as a teammate, and it's what you want to feel as a hockey player. You know, there's a great story. I'm I'm sure you've heard it. Fred Shiro, the uh, the late Philadelphia Flyers coach, who won the Stanley Cup with the Flyers in '74 and '75. It's a story that Bernie Perrant likes to tell. Um, where Fred Shiro, you know, before the uh, before they won the Stanley Cup against the Boston Bruins, said to the team, guys. If we win this game together, we'll you know win this win this game tonight, and we'll walk together forever. Like the minute you win, the minute you're successful as a team, like there's a there's a brotherhood that that forms. Like yeah. everybody everybody on the ice with you, everybody in the room, all the scratches, all the injured players, coaching staff, all of it. Do you feel like you've 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 joined this this club of brothers now here with this Avalanche team? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I like I, I've said it and. And I feel it, you know, I, I think this team, when I think about the, the guys on the team, and when I came here, you know, you just, you felt that, you know, the, the genuine, you know, personalities on the team. You you just had a, I had a connection with basically everyone on the team, you know, and, and I think everyone's connected in that way. It's a very, very strong group of guys in terms of uh, how much they care for each other, how much they work, um, you know, how driven they are. You know, it was, it was very special to see. Um, and to be honest, you know, that's what it's about. You know, it's about the guys in the room. You know, I think the one thing I've, you know, now figured out with the Stanley Cup, you know, I had the obviously experience in the bubble, but one thing I figured out, um, you know, with this experience is there's so much that goes on out on the outside. You know, there's so much that gets brought in with the media and, you know, obviously people that you're friends and family, you know, that there's, you know, everyone's a part of it. But really it's technically about the, the, the guys in that dressing room and the, the people competing and the guys that are basically laying on the line to, to give yourself mm-hmm. an opportunity to be a champion. And, and um, the moment of celebrating on the ice, the moment of celebrating in the room after is those are the, those were the, the moments that really I think about now and they're just amazing. And that's why you have guys do what they do to, to get back there and, and, and be in those positions down the line. You know, you've spent your um, entire NHL career playing in the Western Conference, uh, whether it's the Oilers, the Anaheim Ducks, uh, Dallas, where you went to the final, San Jose Sharks, and, and now the Colorado Avalanche. You know, I, I'm curious, you know, when you were with Anaheim or Dallas or before Colorado with San Jose, 
What was the feeling about the avalanche from the outside? Like, you know, you're sitting around with your buddies from, from Dallas. What are you guys saying about the abs? I mean, you saw them when they were horrible. We'll just be blunt. You saw the abs when they were terrible, and you're now part of them as their champions, and you watched them playing against them as this team grew. What was the nature of the conversation about the abs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what? I don't remember really when they were, t- like, really, really bad. I think those were years where it was like kind of a situation where a team was just, you know, in the bottom and you played them. But I, I felt like, you know, I look at the probably the the, game, the series we had against them in, when I was in Dallas in the bubble, and that year, you know, they're starting to pick up and they're starting to kind of get their footing with guys and becoming a good team. And you know what? I, I think at that point, the, the feeling was like they're a really good team, really skilled, um, but, you know, I think you could maybe frustrate them. I think you could... Um, you could check them hard and take away their uh, take away their skill, and that's all they kind of had, maybe. Um, and and we did that. We actually we, we beat them in that in that in that in that bubble mm-hmm. scenario. And you know they lost to Vegas the pre you know you know last year, and it seemed like that happened kind of the same way from my understanding. But this was a different team this year. I, I you know from what I've maybe experienced with them, uh, you know seen them as a you know competing against them very different in terms of of their defensive details um how driven they were to to compete on both sides of the puck um and basically they you know we play we played a game where we were just relentless you know really when i think about it like we just came out you in waves and we skated and that's the one thing they preach here they preach skating and they preach that high up tempo pace and it's really tough to to compete against when it's when it's on and that's a great with Andrew Cogliano. That's that's great for you because that's your calling card. And as you know, mentioning before, I, I used to watch you play with the buzzers uh, in the in the OJ on that. You know, the team with uh, Mikey McKenzie would have been on that team. I'd always see Bob at the games, and uh, I had a buddy Mario uh, Mike Forgione played on the team, and I used to watch you tons. And like you were a burner, like so fast, so super skilled. And one of the points that I've always tried to make about you, which I think is really impressive, is you know you, you got to the NHL and you realized I need to be a more complete player. Like you shot the lights out with the with the with the buzzers. I mean, it was like forty goals every year. And you got to the NHL and you said, I need to work to make myself a more complete player. And you know there were times you were with Anaheim, and I would say. You know, this entire line, Cogliano, Silverberg, Kessler, they should all be in the conversation for the Selkie. Like, at what point did you say to yourself, I need to evolve my game here to stay in the National Hockey League? You know what? I think it was right, when I, right before I got traded. You know, it was my last year in Edmonton. Uh, I was, you know, Ralph Kruger and Tom Reddy were the coaches, and they approached me about, you know, the same conversation, you know, you know that kind of idea, that conversation. And, and at that time, I, I, I said, yeah, you know, I, I really, that last year in Edmonton, I said, you know, maybe before that, you know, you're still kind of in the mode of coming out of college and being a high-scoring uh, mm-hmm. guy and you had some success early. But it was that last year in Edmonton where I, I really, really brought it in terms of, of working at both sides of the puck. And I had a decent year that year. And then they traded me, you know, with, you know for whatever the reason, in terms of, you know, they wanted to bring new guys in when the team wasn't having success. And then, you know, when I went to Anaheim, you know, I really, really developed that even more. You know, I, I, I got an opportunity to play with Saku Koivu, who basically was the perfect guy to play with in that type of role. And and then I ended up playing with Kess and, and Silverberg. And, 
And our line at times was, I thought, one of the most effective, you know, in the league, to be honest. Like, we just were a very good line in terms of checking, and and Kess and Sylvie were very good offensively. So, you know, I think, um, you know, and even this playoffs, you know, I had the opportunity to play with Helmer and, and O'Connor, who's a really, really good player. And, you know, we get our 10 minutes, you know, to be honest, Jeff, like I'm not sitting here thinking, you know, um, you know, we have our guys on our team this year that carried the, the mail, you know, Nate, Kale, obviously Miko mm. and Landy, those guys are the difference, right? They really are. They, they are the ones that led us to where we were, but you know, with our minutes, I, I really felt with our line, what our goal was to just was to make a difference, was to play on our toes, was to attack, was to skate, was to push the pace and create momentum and, and you know, create an identity for that line to, to help the team. And if it was eight minutes, if it was 10 minutes, I really felt like in the playoffs, other than maybe a couple games, we, we created, made a difference in those games and, and, and really helped the team. And, um, and when, I, I think that's important. I think when you have guys that really want to work towards that and push themselves, you know, you get a team that, you know, has a complete look and Helmer scored a couple big goals. You know, I had a big goal in game four. OC scored a big goal and, yeah. and we contributed. Uh, it was so much fun to watch. It was like the the premium on speed. That the, your your foot speed is incredible. We've always known that uh, about you. Your work ethic, uh, as well. Um, there's nothing quite like talking to hockey players about other hockey players. Um, this is a really interesting team. Gabriel Landeskog, you know, was one of my favorite players in the NHL. I just love everything about Landeskog's game. Nathan McKinnon skates like he's angry at the ice. I don't know that I've seen anyone like he's a rhinoceros. That's how I've always described uh, Nathan McKinnon. And I think like that's that that's him. You know, Kale McCarr is going to start racking up not just Norris trophies but Hart trophies as well. Can you talk a little bit about the dynamic on this team? Like, what what makes this whole thing work? Like we've seen skilled teams before, and it hasn't worked out. But this Avalanche team is different. Like, why? why I mean, listen, Andy, you've been in the in the game for over you know, had over a thousand games. I mean, you started playing yeah. you know, with the Oilers in two thousand seven. What makes this team work? You know what? I, I I honestly, I think Beds and and the coaching staff do a great job. Um, I think they're very detailed. Um, I think you have a direct plan every single game of what needs to be done um, and how it's going to work and what they're doing and what we need to accomplish, which is important because when you have direction like that, it's easy to play. It really, you could, you could just kind of turn your mind off and go do it. And uh, first and foremost, I think they deserve a ton of credit, the coaching staff. Um, And with the players, you know, Kale is just what I've noticed with 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 this team is they 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 practice and they they practice and their habits are just at a different pace. So you know, like you know, you have Kale out there in practice. You have you have Nate. You have all these guys playing at a, a certain pace. Well, it drags other guys to to play kind of at that same level. They're not as talented like as myself and other players, but you know, you have to push yourself. You have to push yourself to skate. You have to push yourself to, to play with the puck and they push guys to be better. Um, and they're just, you know, they're, they're really good hockey players, but I think this year they really competed on both sides. And I felt like they had great players to kind of push that envelope on every line. You know, Val Mishushkin was, I thought, one of our most consistent, probably best players of the yeah. playoffs. You know, there was times I'd watch them during the game and, 
he was just phenomenal. You know, every video clip we do, it was a Val, you know, and so you have him <laughs> playing with Nate and then, you know, Lecky was just an amazing pickup. You know, he just, he's another guy that drove the bus in terms of playing a two-way game. And all of a sudden, you know, you have guys that are really good offensively, but they start doing a little bit of both. And, you know, you end up having two lines that are really uncontrollable sometimes um, on offense because they're playing so well defensively. And then, you know, when, you know, Berkey unfortunately got hurt, I think Barakovsky is a guy that, you know, he'd be on our third line sometimes, you know, with Comfer. And it's just kind of a mismatch for lines. And, you know, our line was the fourth line and we did what we thought you know, we, I told you kind of what our role was, and it gave a different element maybe. You know, it wasn't the talent and the skill, but it created momentum and it created that pace and it helped, you know, at least follow in the same pace. So then, you know, when we go out there and have a good shift and keep a line, you know, or line or defensive pair in there, well, the next shift coming out was Nate. So, you know, mm. eventually that, you know, that momentum would carry on in our games and, and it'd be really too tough to handle at times. So much fun to watch. Um, I want to. I want to ask you one more, and then I'll, I'll let you get on with your day. I, I know you got a lot to do. Is there's the parade and the demands of family and all that, and I, re- I want to respect that. Let me ask you about Jared Bednar. And the one point that I've been trying to make to people about your coach is, we all love hockey lifers, and we all love guys that don't quit. And Jared Bednar played nine years in the ECHL and coached seven years in the ECHL. He spent 16 years of his life in the ECHL. I know you guys as players respect people that earned it and that got there, you know, the hard way and you know, earned every little bit of whatever it is that they got. Do you guys feel that way about Jared Bednar? Because, you know, the players dragged him away from his interview to give him the cup. I've never seen that before. You guys dragged him away from his on-ice interview to give him the Stanley Cup. Uh, I can't help but thinking that there's um, a lot of respect there for that head coach from your team. Yeah, you know what? He did a great job, and he's just a very good coach. And I think maybe through his experiences, maybe what he's, you know, his journey has, has helped him, obviously, and created a, you know him as a coach he is now. But... Um, no, I can't say, honestly, I can't say enough about him and the staff. I think it was a really, um, awesome experience for me to see, you know, how they handled their business and the game plan they put in place. And, and, you know, when you have a coach like him and you believe in what he's doing, guys play hard for, for, for coaches like that. They just compete hard and, you know, and they, they give, they give them their best. So, you know, he's got a very kind of even keel personality which i think really helps them in terms of you know ha- having to deal with guys if they're not playing well if they're playing if they're playing good i think he's kind of pretty even keel throughout everything which um which i think was kind of which was cool which is which is really good to see because i think you know the ups and downs especially in the playoffs is just crazy and i think his personality is is really tailored to be a really good coach and have a team that kind of keep getting better and better and better and and you know i think he's going to be very successful for a long time he did a really good job absolutely listen uh it's so nice to call you a champion uh you've earned it man over a thousand games uh in the nhl 
Um, I love it. Uh, I think we're all on the same page. Congratulations, Andrew Cogliano. Uh, enjoy the parade. Uh, enjoy whatever benefits the Stanley Cup brings you. Uh, enjoy your day with the Cup as well. I'm sure you're already thinking about things you're going to do, and I'm sure your daughters are involved as well. Congratulations. Uh, it was a fun run to watch, a really fun team to cover, and we wish you nothing but the best in the future. Have a great off season. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. And there he is, uh, Stanley Cup champion Andrew Cogliano from the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, over a thousand regular season games and over a hundred playoff games. And you know, I'm sure there were times. I'm really sure that there were times that he thought, mm, "I'm not sure if this is ever going to happen for me." And I'm sure a lot of players go through that. And uh, I'm really happy for for Andrew Cogliano. I used to watch a man at St. Mike's uh, playing with the buzzers. And he was, I'm telling you, if you never had a chance to watch him before he went to University of Michigan, like a lot of players, just a stud. Uh, could do whatever he wanted out there. Had the feet to do it. Had the hands to do it. And then, as we talked about, got to the NHL, and by the time he ended up in Anaheim, it was, if I'm going to stay here, I need to change my game, and I need to evolve my game. And he became one of the best two-way players in the game. Thanks to Andrew Cogliano of the Avalanche for stopping by the program today. Thanks to Joe Smith, who covers the Tampa Bay Lightning, for helping read the laundry list of injuries, uh, as outlined by General Manager Julian Brisebois earlier on today. Uh, thanks to Brian, uh, Brian Burke, president of Hockey Operations for the Pittsburgh Penguins, talking about the 2022 Hall of Fame class and also the Penguins and the GM of the Year Award. And Elliot Friedman, who uh, kicked it off as he does each and every day here on the Merrick Show. Back tomorrow uh, for more across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Thanks for joining me today. Talk to you tomorrow.